One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes and my guest today is Caroline O'Donoghue. Welcome to Our Shelves, Caroline. It's such a pleasure to have you here as we kick off another season of the podcast. Thank you so much, Lucy. And I'm actually reminded that I think that the first ever event in publishing I ever did, you hosted. Was that your first event? Yeah. The one we did at Waterstones Gower Street yes, back in the day? Yes. <laughs> With, I think it was Sophie McIntosh and Charlene Teo were the other panellists. That was it. It was a debut fiction event, wasn't it? And you three just had novels out. So that must have been your first one, Promising Young Women. Is that right? It was, Back in yeah. 2018. Yeah. So thank you for that. Oh, well, you're very welcome. <laughs> you sort of really <laughs> launched me on my maiden voyage into this sort of world of having a public facing career. And it was a great, you know, you were a great deflowerer. <laughs> it's, all, it's all down to me, your wonderful career. You can uh, count on me for everything that you've achieved since then. I'm going to take credit for it. <laughs> Well, I'm not going to take credit for Caroline's career because she is a New York Times bestselling author and the host of the award-winning podcast, Sentimental Garbage. Her first novel, Promising Young Woman, which I interviewed her about back in the day, was shortlisted for a post-Irish Book Awards Sunday Independent Newcomer of the Year. And her second, Scenes of a Graphic Nature, was longlisted for the Ondarchi Prize. She's also the author of All Our Hidden Gifts, a supernatural series for teenagers. And just this month, Virago is publishing your third novel for adults, The Rachel Incident. So congratulations. Congratulations, Caroline. It always feels a bit strange saying a novel for adults as if I'm implying kind of <laughs> it's some sort of X-rated yes, um, I know. story, but that's not the case. It is funny. Yeah, I have to make that distinction all the time as well. Of like when people ask me what, who I write for, I always start with, well, I do sort of serialized fantasy for teenagers and books for adults. And it does sound like it's like <laughs> it's behind a kind of a beaded curtain or something. Yes. Can only be got in very specialized shops yeah. in Soho. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Do you find that when you're writing them, do you have to put on sort of different hats, as it were, or do you use the same? I mean, how do you sort of distinguish between yourself as a writer for adults and a writer for teenagers? Or is there really no difference in your mind? I don't see it as being a huge difference, really. I think that I, I've sort of come to think of the trilogy, um, the All Our Hidden Gifts trilogy, which I had to produce quite quickly um, because no one sort of tells you when you start writing, when you sign on to do a trilogy for teenagers that mm. those books need to be produced at quite a clip because 
you really need to get a YA series on the shelves, like completed, while that initial generation are able to enjoy it because the things that you enjoy at 13 aren't mm. necessarily what you enjoy at 17 and you can't I never thought of that but of course. I had never thought of that either and so wow. yeah so I sort of did did three quite long books in sort of four years um and that alongside sort of doing the adult stuff as well and it was um I've sort of started referring to it in my head as kind of like an MFA I was paid for um because <laughs> <laughs> because when you're producing at that kind of a clip and you're, um, it's fantasy, so it has to be these big, big storylines that really continue to both sort of continue the themes and also raise the stakes of the things that went on before it. Um, and also mm. because it's YA and because you're you're dealing with a, quite a small cast of characters, there's really only about six characters in the in these books. Um, you sort of the, the characterization has to just get deeper and deeper and deeper as you go through these books. And obviously they're young people, so they're evolving all the time. Um, and mm. so what it sort of feels like as a writer is that like this very, very intense sort of bracket of time. And what was also lovely about it is most of my content, oh, most of my peers, my friends, like I live in London, I moved here when I was 21. Most of my friends are sort of writers, creatives in the media, in and out. They don't, uh, they're the best friends in the world. They don't read YA fantasy. And so <laughs> most of my friends are like, oh, I'm, I must get around to reading your book. It's like, it's fine. It's not for you. It's fine. Yeah. But it was sort of lovely to have this bracket of both time and work to sort of learn like re- kind of how to really, how I like to write novels, I guess, because um, I think it really sort of taught me that, you know, how to sort of really manage big plots, how to manage um characters that you know appear very ordinary but have sort of a deeper kind of thing going on and and how to sort of create a plot that is as a result of a of the character's actions as opposed to the other way around I guess and and which is Mm. which is not to sort of bastardize my earlier work promising or scenes at all but I do feel like there's something about being crunched into that sort of time that you do emerge as a different writer and so I don't really see them as being separate arms but more as like separate schools where I'm constantly feeding back into what I'm learning from one into the other. Mm. That's so interesting because I was thinking while I was reading The Rachel Incident, which I very much enjoyed, about, um, and I remember reading, you know, Scenes of a Graphic Nature when that came out and Promising Young Woman loved those, but there did seem something about The Rachel Incident that I was aware that you had maybe, you'd sort of grown up a little bit as a writer, like the writing had a sort of accomplished feel to it that maybe wasn't quite there in the in your kind of first works, which is wonderful when I think as a reader, you're able to see a writer's kind of, you know, growing and get into it. And one of the things we're probably going to come up against now when we talk about um, a Ra- the Rachel Instant is that it is a very well plotted, quite plot heavy book in the sense of lots of different things got to click into action. But it feels so dynamic when I was reading it. It felt very seamless in that way. Like you'd spent a long time very cleverly and meticulously plotting it to make it kind of come across like that. Or do you think you'd learned that on the job of writing these uh, the, the the teenage fiction? Yeah, I, I think it was very learned on the job. And um, I, yeah, I'm very proud of the Rachel incident for that reason. I think on a craft level, it's the best thing I've ever done. It, it feels really awful to sort of like self pat your back about that kind of stuff it's it feels gross but you have to do it I suppose um but it's like well no I mean you've worked hard at it clearly and it's you know and I think recognizing that is also important as a writer you need to understand when you've got something right and what are your strengths yes yeah no you're right and like 
Um, yeah, and, and, and you're right, it is sort of satisfying to look back on a sort of a career and see the places where you've grown. And, and I, I'm not, I, I, like, I sort of like to reassure myself and think that, like, I know I've written six books or whatever, but statistically, I could still be very much at the beginning of my career. You know, I, ho- I hope I'm doing this when I'm mm. Margaret Atwood's age, you know. So, um, but sorry, that's avoiding the question. But um, <laughs> uh, what I'm proud of the Rachel Incident is that there, there's a lot, it's a very quotidian quite ordinary book about very ordinary people um and there's lots of details that are sort of dropped about what various people are interested in or suffering from or whatever that that feel like color but then actually become every mm. everything actually is very crucial like things that people are reading yeah. or doing or not doing or whatever that feel like just breezy daytime activity everything plays a little role and I'm really proud of that but it's it didn't weirdly it's the least it was I spent the least amount of time with this book sitting down and plotting it and and I'd never I didn't write a detailed overview which I've done for every other book I've written something about it was like I think because with this book I have I had the most faith in the characters in the setting that I ever had before because I was not afraid to both draw from real experiences and also to twist those experiences I think before maybe there was a certain kind of level of anxiety of like you know the kind of classic thing of like oh women are always accused of writing about themselves or whatever and that's yeah. kind of now become this glib line in kind of female publishing discourse of like oh we 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 accuse women of never being able to make things up and now i think we've gone the other direction with that discourse where we're now it's now like if somebody is using their life to to inform their fiction we kind of don't know what to do with it a bit. We're like, don't know whether it's treated yeah. as a fact or fiction or whatever. And I think, you know, and so I had a huge faith in the characters in the setting because they were based on people I knew. But I also had huge faith in myself to just invent things and not try. Mm. I, sorry, I feel like I'm talking in circles, but with Scenes of a Graphic Nature, my second novel, I felt like I was in such a rush to show people how much I could invent that mm. it, it sort of ended up having a lot of sort of snake arms sort of like kind of there was a lot of snakes coming out of that beast um, and I think I had a sort of a more relaxed idea going into this one and probably a more confident idea and I didn't feel and the plot just sort of naturally seemed to emerge sorry that probably is, sounds really incoherent <laughs> no 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 I think that that makes perfect sense I mean it's it's I think it's an incredible achievement then because it, like I say, it's so meticulously plotted and there are so many points in it where um, something would happen, which I'm not going to sort of give away any spoilers. And I go, oh, oh, and then you think, then everything that you've been reading before clicks back into gear and you think, oh, it has been leading to this, but I didn't realise at the time, which is so cleverly done, I think. Oh, thank you, Lucy. And actually the most rewarding things I've heard about this book so far um, from, you know, NetGalley reviewers or whatever have been like, oh, I finished it and then I sort of started it again, sort of, that thing of you know oh now that I know everything you know yes I could see that it would be a very very satisfying book to go back to the beginning of and then trace it through in a and you'd almost you know be able to see the story happening and kind of recognize these little bits as it went along um I feel we are talking weirdly about this book that many of our listeners won't have had a chance to read yet because it's only just come out uh could you give us a sort of very brief synopsis Yes, uh, The Rachel Incident is set in, uh, mostly in 2009-2010, in Cork City, which is the city where I'm from. And um, it is it tells the story of a young woman called Rachel, who's sort of, she's, she's you know, 21 years old or whatever. And she's kind of, um, she's sort of too young to be as old as she is a bit. 
um, mm. is, is always how I think of her. She sort of, um, the economic recession has really devastated Ireland at this point. Um, the, her, her sort of parents are in a lot of financial trouble. She's going to university in the town where she grew up in. And because of this, there's a sense, and she's also, you know, she has, she's still with a boyfriend she's been with since sort of mid-secondary school. And there's just kind of, she's a very heavy sort of weighted down character at the beginning who sort of doesn't quite know how lonely and bored she is until she works at a bookshop called O'Connor's and um, she meets uh, another young man called James who's working as a Christmas temp and uh, her first assumption of when she meets James is that he's, he's obviously gay um, because he sort of he just sort of has an energy and a verve and a wit and a campness to him that's so instantly magnetic and I think is particularly magnetic to young women who haven't discovered themselves yet they're sort of it's mm. like this electric current that wakes them up and it certainly wakes her up and they become best friends very quickly they move in together and then um I think often when you have a be- a new best friend at that age what's really important early on is that you have some kind of um sort of blood pact happen <laughs> if not mm. literally then figuratively and their sort of figurative blood pact is that she kind of confesses to him that she's um you know obsessed with her literature professor this man called Dr Byrne uh, James finds this really exciting and fun and so they sort of plan this book launch for Dr Burns' unreadable book um, <laughs> his very heavy tome about the Irish famine <laughs> yes and its effects on the art world <laughs> yeah and um yes and uh, they 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 um hold the book launch for him with the view to for Rachel to seduce him and then when crunch time comes and this is about 80 pages in so it's not much of a spoiler um Dr. Byrne ends up getting with James rather than Rachel. And then what kind of unfolds is this sort of like coming of age novel about the two of them and the secrets they sort of forced to uphold for one another and the sort of various betrayals, lies and things that follow as they get sort of closer and closer to both Dr. Byrne and his wife. I was thinking the story is in so many ways, that story of the friendship, the importance of it and everything you're saying about that way that you make those bonds, particularly when you meet someone who you just click with instantly and you're still sort of finding yourself. Those things are so timeless. And yet there are obviously other things, other elements in this novel that make it so specific. You've already mentioned like the economic recession of 2008 and that's what the characters are all dealing with in different ways. And that idea of being young in Ireland at that point and not maybe having the future in front of you or the prospects of the future in front of you that you might had, you know, envisaged for yourself um, earlier on. But also there is an element of the, there's a, there's a, there's a bit of the narrative that brings us up to the present day. I won't go into too many details here, but at a certain point, I think it's okay to mention that Rachel has been working in London for a while in the um, 2010s. And at that point, she's a journalist and she's been writing a lot about um, abortion, hasn't she? It becomes a kind of, you know, a big topic that as an Irish writer, an Irish journalist at that time, she has to cover. And I was just thinking, because I remember when the day when we first met for that first, um, that first event that you were doing it was only a few it was maybe like a week before repeal the eighth and I remember you telling me at the time about how many Irish people you knew in London who were flying back to vote um, you know in the referendum Uh, not you know many women obviously men as well and I was thinking about how much the sort of weight of that history is in this novel um tied in in very kind of you know nuanced ways but it seems like it's impossible to write about this sort of period of um, sort of Irish history without bringing this into it did you find that yes it's so funny how I'm like yes I, I just remembered 
that we spoke about that at that event or back in 2018 and that I was wearing yeah. my repeal the eighth t-shirt yeah you gave me a, you gave me a badge yes. I still got it now yes yes, yes. <laughs> I had I had a big stack of badges that said tall on them which is Irish for yes and yeah yes to repeal the eighth and I, I remember at my signing table I had a big stack of badges and was giving everyone to everyone and um yeah and I was among the people who flew back as well and I can say that now I couldn't say that for years because it was actually illegal to do that um <laughs> sorry I you just... rumbled me um, no but I, I mean oh, it's, yeah, I can say it now but yeah because um they, they had um they had some we had the marriage equality vote in I think 2015 and I think an enormous amount mm. of people flew home for that and then there seemed to be a pushback and this was kind of And which is kind of, I, I, I guess, in essence, a kind of fair thing of like, well, the, the future of the country should not be dictated by people who don't live in it, which I, I, I mean, obviously, I voted for marriage equality as well. But I do understand that as a theory. So they, they kind of clamped back on people flying home to vote. Um, and so I had to sort of illegally do it by pretending that I <laughs> still lived in the country. And it was all very cloak and dagger. It was an exciting time. But um, yes, the to answer your question, um, I don't I don't think there's any you can't overstate how much Irish abortion laws uh factor into the art of Irish women I think and maybe Irish mm. men too although I haven't spoken about it with them as much um but um the I think because especially sort of my generation or whatever so you you really you grow up um obviously as a teenager obsessed with sex and we're kind of we you know we grew up in this kind of very specific time and I think this is probably why I go back to this time a lot in my podcast as well of uh, and maybe everyone's just obsessed with the time that they themselves were young um you know in in the kind of uh turn of the century sort of you know Paris Hilton and kind of celebrity sex tapes and raunch culture and playboy phone charms and all that that was all part of it that was we were getting that as much as everybody else was but we were also living in this time that had just was just starting to emerge from like this this incredible sexual repression to the extent where yeah. like it was incredibly hard to get you know birth control in the illegal to get birth control in the country unless you were a married woman until I think the mid 80s um Was it? I don't know. I don't have my dates right, but you know, very late. You know, um, the last Magdalen laundry in Ireland closed in 1996, which is where women who were pregnant outside of wedlock could be sort of incarcerated for their entire lives. Like this, and and, and obviously, and you know, the morning after pill, extremely expensive and hard to get. Um, even when I was a teenager, when I had to, I had to get the morning after pill when I was about 17, and I remember I I went around to all my friends and I collected money from them, you know, because it was about 85 euros or something like that. Something wow. not, like a nuts amount of money for a teenager. Yeah, and yeah. it was complicated to get and you had to go to like several constant pay. It was mad. Especially when you think of it like the time frame of the morning after pill when you have to take yeah. it. Yeah, I was going to say, you haven't got an awful lot of time to get that money and then to go, you know, actually jump through hoops to get it, right? It's not like just walking into a chemist. Yeah, yeah, you couldn't get in a chemist. You had to make an appointment at a freak, at a clinic or whatever. Anyway. Um, and then obviously the kind of the crown jewel in all of this anxiety that's also rubbing up against this culture that's becoming... rapidly sexualized is that if you have sex and if you get pregnant you will have to go to England to get an abortion and if you are thinking about that concept around the time that you're trying to lose your virginity desperately um, like say 16 17 18 you know that is a psychological weight that is just a, this constant burden on you because where would you get the money you'd have to tell your parents you know I, there was a I think I, I mentioned this in the Rachel incident there was a referendum in 2004 
2005, I think, to um, legalize abortion in the small number of cases where the mother, the life of the mother is threatened. And even in that yeah. case, it didn't pass. So that was all of our parents. Like our all, I think my parents now uh, are very, and, and that generation general, are very convinced that abortion is a necessary thing within a society. Um, but back then they weren't so convinced. It was just the vibe. And I think when you were growing up at that kind of a crossroads, it, it can't not influence the kind of art that you make, which is why I think we see so much of like sex and reproduction within Irish millennial novelists. Like we're, I think we're obsessed with mm. it. Um, and it's just what we, yeah, it's what we go through. So abortion has been the most, one of the most emotional and artistic, um, you know, centerpieces of my life without me ever having one <laughs> you know like which is is such a fascinating thing to me yeah absolutely well I would encourage all of our listeners to go out get your copy of the Rachel Instant ASAP and I guarantee that you'll all love it um Caroline let's jump into the main questions now I'm going to start off by asking what books are currently on your nightstand so I'm reading two books at the moment uh, and they're very different. Um, one of them is The Female Persuasion by Meg Wallitzer. And the other one is Lunar Park by Brett Easton Ellis. And Meg Wallitzer, my Wallitzer one is, I, I actually, I went on holidays recently and I read The Interestings. And I just thought it mm. was phenomenal. I don't know if you... Was that the first time you'd read her? Yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't believe, like, where has this woman been all my life? And that's that fabulous feeling of being like, there's all these books and I just get to read them because she's got like yes. eight or nine books and I get to read them all in my own time. And what I and the female persuasion is interesting and about halfway through, maybe three quarters of the way through. But it's kind of it's dealing with a subject I find fascinating and have tried and failed to write about, which is and actually very relevant to Virago, I think, which is what happens when you try and make an ideological movement such as feminism into a capitalist venture which you know I mean, that's what Farago is you know it's like it, it's not you know selling books you know it's selling books for a profit and I find that a, such an interesting schism and that's very much what the female persuasion is about about sort of a young woman going to work with sort of a feminist second waiver kind of business and the sort of various sort of conflicts of that but I, I find it fascinating because I worked at a website called The Pool a few years ago which mm. It's funny, it meant a lot of the time, but it's funny as time passes how little it comes to mean. <laughs> like, less and less people remember it, do you know what I mean? Uh, but at, at that... It was huge. I, rem I remember it being huge. But yeah, you're right, I haven't thought about it recently, let's say. Whereas everyone used to write for it and it was such a big deal. Yeah, yeah. It was a big deal for about, you know, four, four yeah. years. It was a big deal. It did a lot of incredibly admirable things, and one of and one of the things that was so admirable about it is like nobody in the British press covers the Irish abortion referendum quite as thoroughly as the pool did. Like things that like yeah. like yeah, because there was a lot of <laughs> Irish members of staff there, like, and I was one of them. And nice, you know, and and there was lots of um, lots of news that we covered that was um, important and not being covered anywhere else. But also, it was a capitalist venture, <laughs> and there was lots of stuff that we covered or there wasn't time to research or do due diligence on there's a lot of reactionary stuff a lot of like you know the daily mail has published a picture of kate middleton sunbathing topless on on her holidays 
um, and and we're and and now we're going to republish the same photograph, um, but under the headline of like, can you believe the Daily Mail is running this? Do you know what I mean? It's like, and I found like, <laughs> like it's sort of this have your cake eating it too. That's kind of necessary when you're trying to run a business for profit. Anyway, so that's what female persuasion is about, <laughs> and um, I just, I find that subject fascinating, and I haven't, and I'd like to really get into it in my own work, but I've kind of not been able to so far. Um, maybe it's something to do with distance and then lunar park the day will come the day will come you'll get there yeah <laughs> yeah sorry yeah <laughs> I tried to but I, yeah I think I think maybe in 10 years I'll have a better idea yeah you just need to let it sort of sift and settle and then you'll you'll have a brilliant novel about it I'm sure at some point yeah too, so don't worry <laughs> don't rush it don't rush okay it yeah I think yeah I think you're right I do think yeah. you're right and what about Luna Park tell me about this one I haven't read um this is an embarrassing admission of mine but I don't think I've ever read any Brett Easton Ellis so I think it's embarrassing that I'm reading him now <laughs> okay. well we'll both be embarrassed together about it then yes because he had like you know he's he's really become one of those he was the kind of the enfant terrible of of the kind of the 80s mm. or whatever and now he's just sort of an old man who's on his porch and yells and um but between that those two periods that he published a book in 2005 and i think called lunar park and it is about it is kind of what i find fascinating about it and i'm kind of interested in these kinds of novels a lot lately since writing the rachel incident because the rachel incident begins with a kind of a memo from rachel saying that she was never interested in writing books um mm. and and you know once you read the story you'll kind of understand why and so I liked positioning the Rachel incident as a book where you're challenging the reader to possibly think this might be a memoir or possibly, you know what I mean? Okay. And, um, and, and that's very exciting to me when, when authors do that. And Luna Park is a version of that where he's writing as Brady Snellis as this kind of washed up um, enfant terrible of the 80s, now in a kind of a post 9-11 upstate New York situation where he's you know a drug addict he's trying to have a family it's not going well his father has just died he's dealing with the aftermath of american psycho where there's all these kind of copycat killings of people who've been inspired by patrick bateman and he's kind of dealing with the kind of the terrible things he's wrought on the world and then simultaneously mm. it becomes sort of a haunted house novel of like the house is sort of turning on him that he's trying to live in and trying to be just a famous novelist and it's very Stephen Kingy, but also just very sort of juicy and gossipy. And it's I've honestly I haven't flown through. I started it on Monday. Now I started on Saturday. I'm almost finished. Like it's so good. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Is it making you want to read other novels by him, or do you think you'll? I think I, I don't know. He's just got a new one out right now. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about. I heard a lot of people yeah talking about it recently. Obviously. Yeah. He he published a sh an essay collection provocatively titled whites <laughs> about two years ago yes and it's very and he, it's it's i mean it's very just like oh the young today they're all about their identity politics and their blah, 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 whatever happened to people being mean <laughs> and, and you know that kind of and it's just so it's such a boring point of view but i'm trying to get back into reading people who i don't agree with i guess maybe because I think I may have bubbled myself off by reading a lot of sort of like-minded individuals. And I think it's sort of good to challenge yourself with work you appreciate, who the people you don't necessarily agree with. And I'm, I'm, I'm I am sort of enjoying that. And I, anyway, I think the book he's just published, The Shards, 
he said something really interesting about it. He, someone asked him why he's obsessed with serial killers because it's another one about serial killers. He says, I think serial killers are kind of similar to authors in a way in that they impose their narrative on everybody else and they will stop at nothing until it's observed. Wow. And I thought that was just a great line. <laughs> and, like, and he was like, yeah. And you recognized yourself in it and you thought. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm seen. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, yeah. It me. <laughs> like... Next up, I'm going to ask you about a recent film or podcast tv show or article that's made you think i think you've got a couple of uh, potentials for me haven't you yes yes one of them was the recent long read in vanity fair with caroline calloway how much do you know caroline do you know everything everything? okay (laughs) okay in like two minutes can you summarize caroline calloway for anyone who doesn't know her? oh what a challenge okay caroline calloway was an was a instagram influencer who was a kind of a young a young american woman living in in cambridge i think um she's gone to university in cambridge who she was the, one of the first people young people to really take advantage of instagram as a platform and sort of like wrote a lot of long romantic captions and she looks a bit like sienna miller so like lovely kind of thing and that in itself incredibly boring Uh, And that's the thing with Caroline Calloway. All these individual things that she does are not fascinating of themselves, but they string, all these beads string together to make this fascinating portrait of a human being that I cannot look away from. So she, um, she sort of reneged on a publishing deal, a huge publishing deal. And then she sort of, um, paid her publisher back by going on OnlyFans and recreating great literary figures, but completely nude. Her best friend published a long read in the cut about how she's this abusive friend and all this, all just kind of mad stuff. And this Vanity Fair article, she used to be this New York party girl. She's one of the big kind of jokes about her is that she has promised her fans countless books at this point. She'll say, This book is coming out in May. And then she'll release a sort of a designed cover that she herself has made and has clearly not gone through a publisher. <laughs> And she's like, it's going to be a 400 page epic. Get ready, folks, or whatever. And then six months will go by. And then she'll say, actually, it's not a 400 page epic. It's a, it's a really prose poetry, more like haikus. And then, and then six months will go by and nothing. And the kind of the joke is sort of the book will never happen because the book will mm. almost, it'll be the end of the story once there's actually a tangible thing. And so much of her charm almost is that it's this, this ephemeral ghost person who can't quite be yes. touched or, or something. And, She is currently living in Florida in her, her grandmother died recently. She had been looking after her grandmother. She's now sort of great gardensing with her in her grandmother's sort of Florida condo. She has not moved out any of the stuff, but she's moved her own stuff in on top of the old granny stuff, you know? Yep. She's living in like a retirement complex, isn't she? And she's in her (laughs) twenties. Every, every move is more unpredictable than the last. And so one of the things that the journalist, and it's a fabulous piece of journalism, just from a prose point of view, I think. Uh, she she ha- she's in a dispute with her landlord, her ex-landlord, who she lived in New York, and it turned out she did not pay her rent for two years. And she owed her landlord $40,000. And she, I don't know if you've read the piece, but she starts off saying, kind of, she makes a joke about herself and she says, oh yeah, well, that's the price of living a nice life, I guess. And then she sort of stops herself mid kind of answer and she says, you know what? No, I wanted to be an it girl It girls are startups and startups need funding. (laughs) 
And she's like, the money I, I should have used on my rent, I, 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 I sort of became a sort of an it girl, a, a sort of a brand, a thing. Now, when I do release my book, which will never happen, like, I, I am I am a celebrity and people are talking, you know what I mean? Like, she's, I, I just, it's a bit like the Bernice Dallas thing with the serial killers. Like, I, it's this sort of frame of looking at the world that is so bizarre and I, it, it would take me a million years to come up with it but it makes total con- sense in the context of their existence. And that's what excites me, I think. Like, I just, I sort of just love that. I'm not, yeah. So I loved that piece of journalism. Yeah. Well, I was also thinking, the article is by Lily Analik, isn't it? And she did that incredible podcast, Once Upon a Time at Bennington College, which was all about Brett Easton Ellis and Donna Tart and, you know, the famous kids from that particular era. So she clearly gets these things as well and obviously is drawn to something similar in them oh wow i just i hadn't even realized the connection there our shall be back in just a minute when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes and I'm talking to Caroline O'Donoghue. Can you tell me, uh, Caroline, about a book that made you think about feminism in a new way? Yeah, I think the first feminist book I ever read, the first feminist text, I suppose, mm. was Andrea Dworkin's Woman Hating. Um, I think it's out of print now, you know. But I was given it when I was about 17 by a much older friend. And um, I think I had said something about, you know, the classic mm. young woman thing of not being a feminist or whatever. And he said, well, then try reading this kind of thing. And it, it couldn't have been more perfect because, first of all, I think like there's something about those second waivers. Um, and the, they all have this kind of pro style in common where it's kind of, it's sort of fizzy and intellectual at the same time. And it's also, it's very, you can tell that this was a writing style that was developed at like consciousness raising groups because it's heavy on like women's experience, but also being like, men, they're only interested in your, you know, your see you next Tuesday or whatever. They love, they love a four letter word. You know, they're really like spitting bars on the page. Um, and it's kind of, I, I love that kind of writing. I find it very vervy and fun. Um, but she, it's sort of, begins with kind of like a deconstruction of like modern fairy tales and how women are positioned in them and now I think we find that like very you know well duh kind of thing <laughs> and um but for me as a 17 year old 
I had never thought really that like, oh, I think the modern 17 year old would find this so sort of obvious, but like, like, oh, the stories all around us and the ways in which we represent women and the way we talk about women in the culture or whatever, it's all part of a larger piece and that is called misogyny. Um, I don't think I'd ever understood what misogyny was on a cultural level before reading that book. And then she starts with this very building blocky thing of like fairy tales. And then she sort of builds it up from there. And it's kind of, as a, as a whole book, it's kind of uneven. Like there's lots of essays that just get super violent and very sweary and very intense out of nowhere. And then she'll go back to some very intellectual chat. But it really just like, it woke me up in a big way at a time in my life where I really needed to be. I think it's really interesting to think about um, maybe sort of women of our-ish generation um, coming to things like you're talking about this, like second wave feminism at a point when that has sort of already passed by, but we were maybe in that middle ground where there wasn't something as yet that was speaking to us in the same way that there's so much material, I think, available today. Because I think that, you know, I, don't, I think it comes across a little bit in the, in the Rachel instance as well, that era of being a woman in the sort of early 2000s, being a, a teenager when you're almost supposed to be sort of one of the lads or you don't, you know, you don't quite know what your position is. And in essence, I think, you know, you would be, you know, if someone actually came down to it, of course, you're a feminist, you believe in kind of equal rights for women, but it was not a particularly trendy word at the time, right? It wasn't something that we used. And I find looking back on that era now, and the way that I was in those kind of years, really interesting. And I think, you know, and reading exactly the same sort of books, reading second wave feminism, kind of the key text that didn't necessarily, not everything about them spoke to me, but it is that kind of gateway into thinking like, well, how does this, how does this kind of play into my life? And what is important for me? What do I need to learn from this? Yeah, it's, it's, I, I find that fascinating as well, that there was so, there was like zero feminist discourse yes. when we were growing up really like we had girl power which is great yes but um but I find it fat I, I recently mm. did an episode for the podcast on Spice World the movie and I as a sort of backup I was looking at a lot of interviews that Spice Girls right. gave as a group when they were still a group the original five and um a lot of and it's so interesting how how coached it is because clearly they've been, I mean, they're always themselves, but they were clearly given quite a few strong points by Simon Fuller or whoever. And, you know, radio DJs will say to them, so girl power, what does that mean to you? And they'll always say something quite canned, like, oh, it just means, you know, being yourself and being strong and being a girl is great or whatever. And then it'll be like, they'll, they'll follow up with like, mm. are you feminists? Or where do men play into this? And do you think that women have equal rights? And they oh, will really? always put up a smoke screen of just like, oh, we're, we're, we're just talking about having a good time. You know, it's like everyone having a good time. You know, girls can kick a ball. Wah, kind of thing. It's like completely devoid of any criticism of, mm. uh, of a misogyny in the culture at all. It's like, and that I think is, girl power was such a wonderful moment to be a child in. But it's, again, it lacked any kind of, that's why we dismiss it now, I guess, because it lacked any kind of kickback at all, you know? <laughs> There's nothing behind yeah. it. It's just, you know, shouting girl power at each other. And that's it. But what a time, you know? But that was it. Like... <laughs> 
<laughs> oh god yeah the memories uh, bring back the uh, don't bring back the good old days basically um now could you also tell me about a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you particularly admire please do you know what i thought a lot about this when you sent over the questions in advance of this and um it's so weird. I felt like a sociopath because obviously there are many women that I admire and whose work I admire. And like, obviously, you know, I could say sort of my mum or, you know, a, a, all that kind of thing. And or, you know, Zadie Smith, that's a that's a safe choice, you know, like that's. Um, but I, I don't go in for the admiring so much like there's people whose, whose work I adore. But like, I do think that admiring people should be about certain people witnessed in certain moments who fill you with something sort of fresh and hopeful and I don't think you should carry around your admiration for years at a time I don't think you should be going around being like well it's Hillary Clinton or well it's Daily Smith or whatever and oh well it's Michelle Obama or whatever so anyway this this to say last week I met a woman on a train and her name is Lise Doucette do you know who that is? She's a Canadian journalist. She's no BE. She is, you know, a, a war correspondent and a presenter, and she's done every single job and been to every war zone. And I happened to be sitting next to her on the way home from Hay Festival because I don't know if you've been to Hay Festival, but it's very much relies on on long car journeys because <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> the 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 festival is about forty five minutes from the local station, and I I had ne- never heard of her work before. But I just, I think she's 60 odd or something. Um, But I have never met somebody who's so accomplished, but so generous and so interested and so exciting to be around. And what I feel bad about is that I was so knackered. (laughs) And all I wanted to do was drink this woman and just like ask her about every single thing she'd ever experienced because she was the most fascinating person I've ever met but also go to sleep and so I ended up coming across I think quite rudely <laughs> like because I would, I would I would just veer between like sort of napping <laughs> on the train and being like Lise tell me about Ukraine kind of thing <laughs> and several times people came up to us during this long journey who had recognized her and she was so gorgeous to all of them and I just really thought I was like I really I really love her and I, I I don't know anything about her and I'll probably never meet her again but I hope this podcast gets to her somehow but I just think I thought she was fantastic and I just I've been filled with kind of a residual admiration ever since and you want to apologize for falling asleep and I want to apologize for falling asleep because I was just so because <laughs> I went up I basically I got up at sort of seven took the early train to Hay did my event at half two did a book signing and then got back on the train so that I was just feeling. yeah she'll forgive you don't worry she'll forgive you and this is interesting I think making since then have you wanted to go and kind of read her work I don't know if does she write is it kind of written journal she's a presenter she doesn't write I've just been watching her on YouTube you know like okay yeah well there we are we could all go and google her after this and you know be introduced to her wonderful work. least you sat okay brilliant um and finally to celebrate virago's 50th anniversary they are publishing five new editions of some of their most influential and best beloved books 
um, one for each decade uh, of the for the imprint from the 1970s to the present day, which they're calling their golden apples. And so what we're asking guests on the podcast this year to do is to pick their golden apple, by which I mean the one Virago book that you will always recommend to people, can never stop talking about and wouldn't dream of being without. And which book is yours, Caroline? It's a bit of an easy one, but it's Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. And obviously Rebecca is a very famous story. And we, you know, it's one of those, it's one of those books that has sort of bled into the public consciousness in that like if we were at, you know, at a brunch or whatever, and like someone would say, Oh, you know, I feel like the first I feel like the um the second Mrs. Yeah. De Winter about this or something, we would all know what that meant, you know, and 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 that's what's great about that. But um I sort of read it every few years, and the last time that I read it. I kind of realized that it's such a useful book for now because it's so much about looking at yourself through other people's eyes. And because um, I think once, you, once you've read that book enough times and it's so rereadable, you kind of. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I realized that the second Mrs. De Winter, even though she positions herself as being kind of boring and homely, by the way that people sort of like react to her, yes, they're condescending because they're these country English people, but also... You know, she people think she's sort of exotic and interesting and sort of whatever, but she always just feels so lonely and so um, apart from things. And she's constantly comparing herself to an impossible ideal that she will never, that will never, re, you know, never really existed to begin with because, you know, Rebecca was horrible, we learned at the end. And he was right to murder his wife. But um, I just think it's such an interesting allegory for today, you know, for like... I, you know, I have social media just like everybody else and I feel like I am, yeah, I'm I'm constantly looking for a first Mrs. De Winter, you know, <laughs> in that sense. <laughs> we all have our first Mrs. De Winters to deal with, right? Yes, yes, exactly. And, and it's so much about trying to, so much of the social media experience is trying to see yourself through, like pretending you're other people and trying to look at yourself and... Uh, it's that way madness lies. And uh, I think that book proves that point quite well. <laughs> beautifully put, beautifully put. Well, thank you so much, Caroline. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. I've loved this. Well, 
Well, thank you everyone else for listening. Our Shelves is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Caroline O'Donoghue, and tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism, and culture. Thank you.